Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. Uh, I want to again welcome you guys this morning. Uh, this is a uh, significant morning, a significant day in the history of the church. Um, it is Reformation Day, or Reformation Sunday. Um, some of you guys will say it's Halloween, that's also true, but uh, as Protestants we call it Reformation Day. Um, and Reformation Day has not been on a Sunday in about 11 years, and so that's, um, that's an exciting uh, opportunity and privilege for me this morning to speak uh, out of God's word to you about uh, what the Reformation was really about, because it was a really long time ago, uh, and sometimes uh, it's, it's good to remember uh, that, and it is always a good uh, thing to take time to reflect on uh, the heritage that has been passed down to us through the ages, uh, from the very beginning all the way through the course of time. So that's what we're going to be doing um, a little bit this morning. Now, uh, you guys, if you have your Bibles, we are going to be pinging around a little bit. Um, we'll have all of, almost all of the, uh, the verses on the screen. I'm going to give you guys a little bit of homework uh, to, to explore on your own. Um, but for the most part, we'll have all of these up here for you. Um, so our anchor text this morning is going to be out of Romans chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 2. Uh, I'm going to be reading out of the English Standard Version. Uh, you can obviously read whatever uh, translation you have, but just know that's where we're going to be. Um, so I encourage you, brothers and sisters, now to hear these words as the words of the sovereign living God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. May God bless and honor the reading of his word this morning. 504 years ago today, a German monk had finally had enough. He... uh, was reading the scripture and was adamant about studying God's word and understanding what God's word meant. And he was, as he went further into church hierarchy and church leadership, he started seeing that the things that he was reading in scripture did not line up with the things that he was experiencing in his professional, for lack of a better term, journey. And there were many things that that were... um, problematic in his view, and he was by no means the first one. But he stumbled across something that was going to drive a wedge in the church that would never, ever be resolved. That German monk's name was Martin Luther. And he had a, um, a seminal moment in his life where he, he had many 
um, including the rainstorm and the lightning storm where he promised God he would give him his life if he just delivered him from the lightning storm. But as he's reading through these scriptures, searching through all of these things, um, deeply struggling with his faith and trying to make sense of how what he's reading is not squaring with what he's seeing or what he's living, he goes through and he reads this passage and he discovers that it's all about faith and it's all about grace And it's all about Jesus, and it's not about all of this other stuff. Now, again, he hadn't been the first one to talk about that, but the church had largely, uh, the the Roman church had largely been successful in quieting those voices over the years. But this precept, the first one that we're going to talk about this morning, is so significant that it drove a wedge. Things were never going to be the same after that. And so 504 years ago today, it is said that Martin Luther took his pamphlet of 95 statements, theses as we'd call them, and uh, nailed them to the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany. That church is still there. You can go see it. People make pilgrimages to it, and and some people who like to preach have gotten the opportunity to preach out of the, the, whatever it's called that Martin Luther preached out of, and it's a great and amazing thing. But the point of all that is that that nailing those statements to the door and him being called onto the carpet for it is what gave us the Reformation. The Reformation did not happen on October 31st, 1517. That's our watershed date. Things were in motion well before that. But this time and this action is what drove believers back to church and, uh, or back to truth and drove the church back to truth. Notice with me, if we go back into our text, we're going to unpack this one step at a time here. Notice first that uh, Romans 5, 1 through 12, or 1 through 2 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Justified by faith. Now, we have a bunch of Latin phrases that you know, add alone to that statement. So we can say we are justified by faith alone. This is the linchpin of uh, Protestantism's departure from Roman church tradition. This thing right here. Martin Luther wrote, this one and firm rock, which we call the doctrine of justification, is the chief article of the whole Christian doctrine which comprehends the understanding of all godliness. If we don't understand justification by faith, we do not understand the gospel. We do not understand what all this is about. Everything centers around justification by faith and justification by faith alone. Luther decried the Roman church for a lot of reasons, but this was the point of contention. And the reason for that is because of the way that justification was understood at that time. It was not understood the way that we understand it today. The way that we understand it today is that God alone is the judge and the standard of all righteousness. Psalm 9, verse 7 and 8 says, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with righteousness. God alone is the judge. It's only his standard that matters. No other standard matters or applies. 
Because God is that judge, anything else is disqualified from setting the standard. Did I make the universe? Did I set the earth and spin it on its axis like a basketball? No, I didn't. I'm disqualified. I can't set the standard, nor can you, nor can anybody. God alone sets the standard. Because God sets the standard, everyone else is disqualified. And this is also because God cannot accommodate sin. Everybody's guilty. All of us. Because we are all sinners. We are sinners by nature, thanks to Adam. We are also sinners by choice. So two ways we are guilty. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam gives us the nature. We give ourselves the status of sinners by choice. And Romans 3.23, most of you know this verse already, says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all guilty. Nevertheless, and the church recognized this, but the church tried to impose its own standard of righteousness. It was not just faith. It was faith plus all of these things over here. The problem with that is that any church hierarchy, good, bad, indifferent, whether it's the church at Rome, whether it's the church over here, whether it's the the leadership structure here at Bay Ridge, Church hierarchy is comprised of people. And last time I checked, people were sinful and thus disqualified from setting the standard. Right? God alone sets the standard. The guilty cannot do for the guilty what is needed to be done for the guilty in order to justify them. It's not possible. If it were possible, Jesus never needed to come and God killed his son for no reason. It's not possible. And that's because uh, justification is the act of declaring or making somebody righteous in the sight of God. Guilty can't do that. Only God can do that. And so if we unpack this Romans 3 passage a little bit more, we say, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, talking between Jews and Gentiles, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then Habakkuk 2.4, which is where Martin Luther had his aha moment. The righteous shall live by his faith. Now, some folks may have heard something else. Some people may be like, wait a second. I know that in James it says something else altogether. Doesn't James chapter 2 say that faith without works is dead? And doesn't that mean that we need to do something in order to make our salvation sure? That was the Roman justification. That was the way they had it set up. It's the source of many uh, contradictory claims or claims of contradiction by Bible naysayers. But the reality is that good works stem from justification. They do not contribute to justification. 
We're familiar with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, right? Sometimes we forget to read on to verse 10. 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, John Piper, who's a, one of those famous guys that's on the internet and social media and, and, and in the famous preacher circles and everything, put it this way. Justification comes by faith alone, but that saving faith is never alone. The good works just come. It's the response to what's been done in our lives. Romans 6, this is part of your guys' homework because we're not going to go there, but Romans 6 has a lot to say about behavior of the believer. Do we just keep doing the same things that we've been doing? Uh, no. Meganoita. Inconceivable, right? We did a, did a message on that a few months back if you want to take a look at that. Whole thing in Romans 6, unpacking that for you. It is not conceivable for you to continue in the same direction. There is a change of direction that happens. And those are from works of evil to good works, but it's all God, it's not us. The justification happens first. This leads to some sort of conflicting statement, right? Why is it faith alone if we have to do this, if we have to do all of these other things, right? Why faith alone? Friends, faith is the, it's the only way. Romans 3.20, going back even further. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, because since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Isaiah 64.6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The English language sanitizes that Hebrew a lot, just so you guys are aware. It's very graphic, what's being described. Um, in, in Isaiah. The, the point is, this debunks folks who would misapply James and say, you have to have the works in order for it to count. They will be there. Don't confuse what I'm saying. They will be there, but they're not of a credit, so to speak. There is no amount of works that can possibly push our faith over the top. It's already there. The justification comes from faith that God gives to us. Faith paints the whole picture of what happened. And again, this Romans 3 passage really brings this out. Uh, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus who, for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by blood to be received by faith. What action is there of the believer? We're receiving the action that's already done, right? That's it. Everything else comes after that. Righteousness comes to us through faith, not works. We cannot achieve our own righteousness to the degree God requires. It is a gift 
that needs to be received. When we get there, God looks at you or me and says, why should I let you in? Great question, God, you shouldn't. But faith is what justifies, and faith alone. Jesus did the work. I believe that. I received the work that he has done because I could not do it. That's justification by faith and justification by faith alone. But it's, not, it's so much more than that in this passage that we're talking about this morning. It is justifying faith. But notice also that through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. The object of justifying faith is the grace of God. Because while it is faith that justifies, faith alone that justifies, it is God's grace alone that saves. Grace is a gift of favor from God to men. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Again, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. But this is talking about the grace that saves us through faith. It is a gift of God. You cannot earn it. I cannot earn it. I don't deserve it. But thanks be to God that he has extended that grace to you and to me without any consideration of what we have done or what we have not done. God says in Romans 9, Verse 15 and 16, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God gives the gift of grace to you and to me, undeserving, unworthy sinners. And the measure of that grace is that he sent his own son to stand in our stead because we could not do that. He is the mediator. It is not grace plus works. It is not grace after all you can do. There's a group that claims to be Christians that believes that. They're not. They don't understand the gospel. There's nothing inside of you or me that God sees and says, oh, hey, I'll take that one. It's not grace plus anything. Friends, to add anything to grace removes grace from the equation altogether. Jonathan Edwards, one of the great preachers of old, Put it this way, you, I can say I as well, contribute nothing to salvation except the sin that made it necessary. It is all an act of God. It is all an act of God that's mediated through 
the Son, Jesus Christ. Notice further, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace has been mediated through Christ and Christ alone through the shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. How does that work? Short answer is, I don't know. Long answer is, I'm going to try to explain it and do the best I can. We know that only God has the power to forgive sins. When Jesus is healing the paralytic in Mark chapter 2, he looks at the guy and says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees that are like, what's this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're right. Only God can forgive sins. But Jesus is God. Lest we forget, John 8, 58. People say Jesus never claimed to be God. They've never read John 8, 58. Abraham rejoiced to see your day. You're not even 50, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, ego eimi, I am. The four letters, Y-H-V-H. And if you remember the reaction... They got exactly what he was saying because they picked up rocks to chuck at him and stone him. They knew exactly what he was saying there. Jesus is God. He proved that by the resurrection. And so if Jesus is God, Jesus has the power to forgive sin and he has the power to mediate sin. Now, the Roman church tried to hold the keys to forgiveness, which was a misappropriation of Matthew 18.18. That was... You know, whatever you loose in heaven will be loose on earth, and whatever, or whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, right? Not quite what they were getting at, because what they would do is they would, um, they would hold the keys. They would say, you're either in or you're out, and they're making the determination. Not scripture, not justification by faith. They were making a, a reaction like, you're in, you're not in. And they would hold that over you. I'll elaborate on that a little bit in a second. But that even extends to priesthood today, right? Nothing against people of other denominations that that preach the word of God. But friends, I want everybody to remember, and I want this to be very, very clear. There is one priest, and his name is Jesus Christ. One priest that can mediate. One priest that can forgive. One priest who can go between man and God. Jesus is the only mediator. First Timothy 2, verse 5. There is one God. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is Christ alone. Hebrews even goes further and says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Those last three words are the operative words. Yet without sin. Christ is our mediator. It's not a church. It's not a human priest, again, nothing, nothing against folks that are, that are trying to do the right things as they understand it, but there is one priest 
It's Christ Jesus. He has the access. The misunderstanding that comes from here comes from, um, from a quote from St. Augustine who says, uh, he who does not have the church as his mother does not have God as his father. Now, in a very narrow sense, that's true. In that, you are either part of the universal people of God or you're not. But later church authorities after Augustine misappropriated this quote and they used membership in the universal lowercase c Catholic church as a weapon against the masses through excommunication. You only need to look through human history to see this. Throughout the whole Middle Ages, if, they did, if, if a king did something that the church didn't like, the church held excommunication over his head until he got with the program and did what the church wanted him to do. Right? Sometimes it's justified, a lot of times it's not. This is why we had a lot of reformers. We had predecessors to the reformer, like John Tyndale, who was burned at the stake for the crime of wanting to translate the Bible into English. We have John Wycliffe, who actually he escaped death but was excommunicated. He escaped death until you know, he, he died later, but they, did, they didn't kill him. But he was so railing against some of the things that the church was doing to gatekeep everything, and it riled them up so bad that once they actually determined that he was a heretic, he, they dug up his body, he'd been dead for like 20 years, and then burned it at the stake. This is why we have folks like Jan Hus, who's the founder of the Moravian Church, who wanted the Bible in check and railed against other things that were going on, and they burned him at the stake. And Martin Luther, they would have if they could have, but he was one step ahead of them and faked his own kidnapping and was secreted away into a castle where he translated the Bible into German and wrote a bunch of other letters under a pseudonym. This is, all of these guys were excommunicated, but all of them appealed beyond the church. They appealed directly to Christ because they knew where they were supposed to look. Look, don't get me wrong, guys. I love the universal church. And if you're part of the universal church, so should you. And I love this local church. And if you're part of this local church, so should you. And I love being a part of both of those things. And so should you. But neither the universal church nor the local church, whether that's Bay Ridge or some other church around here, neither of them died to save your souls. Right? Neither of them can mediate between you and God. One person. One person only, the man Christ Jesus. He is our mediator. He is our great high priest. So what's the point of all this? And I'm a little bit long-winded, and I apologize for that. We're getting where I'm going, I promise. The point of all this is the last phrase in this passage of Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Through him we also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I submit to you, friends, that this is all for the glory of God. The reason for all of this is that God would be glorified. How do I know this? Because I've read Ephesians 1, and I've read Paul's letter, and I've read that in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. 
In him you also, second generation now, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. It is the glory of God alone. Even in the famous, what's called the kenosis passage in Philippians 2, where Jesus empties himself. That's the Greek word kenosis, is just emptying himself. He empties himself, makes himself of no reputation, is obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross. And then it picks up in verse 9 and says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to what? To the glory of God the Father. Again, it's that God will be glorified. Somebody is glorified when sinners come to repentance. Someone is glorified when we gather together for worship. And the someone must be God the Father. And it better be, or we're doing it wrong, right? I am the Lord, he says in Isaiah 42, verse 8. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. There is old glory. And you can debate the level of worship versus veneration or whatever, but of Mary, of the saints, of certain people in the past, some people will put them on par with God. Some people will not. Uh, I don't even mess with that because the possibility is to take glory away from God. There is a new glory today that I think is far more pernicious than this, and that is that this is all about this guy right here or those folks out there. It is all about you guys. And what God has done for you and how God can take your circumstances and make them into something amazing. Now, that, that's true. He may do that. But let's not mistake who the object of the glory is. That happens. But that glory belongs rightly only to God. And if we don't ascribe it to him, if we give it to him anywhere else, uh, give it anywhere else to any other person, God is displeased. And his opinion is the only one that matters. So as we get to applying the word here, I want to ask one question before we do that, and then we will apply the word. And that question is, why do we apply the word? Why do we have this thing every week at the very end of the sermon where we go into applying the word? And the reason that we apply the word is the fifth of those Latin phrases. You know, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, glory of God alone. We appeal to scripture. We appeal to scripture alone as the authority for faith and practice. All scripture, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Doesn't say all teaching is breathed out by God. Now, prayerfully, hopefully it is. But don't take what I say up here for granted. Don't take what any of us up here say for granted. Apply scripture. Apply, apply it faithfully. The questioning or the misappropriation 
of Scripture is not new. They question what the Bible says now, right? Oh, God didn't say anything about that. He doesn't address this. Back in the garden, right? Has God really said? Now, the Bible doesn't speak to many issues, but where it does speak, so should we. Where the Bible's silent, we ought not presume what it says. Now, Luther would go back, and when he was finally confronted by all of these people, um, all of the uh, authorities, and told that he needed to recant uh, his justification by faith alone and all the other issues and everything like that, he said this. He said, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. He said that because the church had elevated papal edicts and man-made traditions, etc., to the same authority level as the word of God. They believed that the Pope was the representative of God on earth, and whatever the Pope said was immediately, it, could be, it had to be true. It could not, no lies, no fallibility, none of that kind of stuff. Last time I checked, before he became Pope, he was a man, right? So that disqualifies that statement. But Luther saw that. The point is, it's not new. Jesus, while he walked the earth, said, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, speaking to the Pharisees, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. If God didn't issue it as a commandment, that's just my, it might be a good idea, but that's about all it is. Leaders did this during the Reformation. They did it during the, the time of the church. And they even did it in the garden. Satan's question to Eve, has God really said? Eve turns around and says, God said of all the trees in the garden, except for this one, we, should, we, should eat. Except for this one, we shouldn't eat it, neither should we touch it. God didn't say that. Not touching it's a good idea, right? Because touching it probably leads to eating it, but didn't say that. He just said, don't eat it. It's been going on for as long as time has existed, and we do it too. You know, there, are, uh, there are folks out there who will take extra biblical revelation and they'll put it on par with scripture. There are people who will declare that we can manifest things as if, we can, as if we're mini creators, which it's not true in the way that they're understanding it. We have denominations that are bound up in legalism. We have denominations that are bound up in liberalism. It takes all stripes, and it's all overly religious, what it does is it binds people. The Jerusalem Council talked about this because the Judaizers were trying to put constraints on the Gentile believers. Yeah, you can believe in Jesus, but you have to do X, Y, and Z as well. And they turn around and they say, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a, a yoke on the neck of the disciples, meaning Gentile followers, that neither our fathers nor we, being Jews, have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So they're appealing to what we know 
is God's word. There's no equivocation there. So appeal to scripture. Study scripture. Uh, adhere to scripture. Where the Bible speaks, speak. Where it doesn't, we would do well to tread lightly. And now we will apply the word. Friends, I want to leave you with this. I'm going to expound a little bit, so we got a few more minutes. I'm, I'm sorry. But imagine this. Imagine if you had to always act in a way that made you worthy, uh, a worthy recipient of the grace that God extends. Imagine if you had to add to your faith with a series of works to prove yourself. Imagine if you had to rely on others for your forgiveness and your right standing with God. Imagine if you had to follow a list of rules developed outside of God's word on top of following God's word. And imagine that at the end of that, well, I hope that's enough, right? I don't know about you, but that sounds exhausting. And worse, worse, there is no way to know in that list of things. You will never, ever, ever know whether you've done enough or not until you get there and you find out you didn't. Everything I've said today, friends, comes down to this point. There's what the Bible teaches and there's what tradition taught. The corrupted tradition that Luther and company brought away from. The Bible teaches rest. Tradition teaches work. The concept of rest is vital to understand, and this is the last thing in, in applying the word, and then I'll ask some questions and we'll be, we'll be out of here, I promise. The rest that's promised to us, by the way, English majors, you know this already, it's a noun, it's not a verb. Jesus says, come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Indirect object has to be a noun. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So rest, as Jesus is talking here, is not chilling at home one day a week. There's nothing wrong with that. It can be restful. Hopefully it is restful. If it's not restful, then something's not right, right? But that's only a taste of what God's rest really is. So then, Hebrews 4, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God and for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So there's some verb, but it's rooted in the noun. Now, Colossians 2, and I'm not going to turn here. You can read that later. That's the second part of homework, right? says clearly that things like Sabbath and rest and things as we understand them are shadows and the substance is Christ. If you've been saved by grace alone and justified by faith alone in Christ alone, our only mediator to the glory of God alone, friends, I've got great news for you. You have entered God's rest. You can rest from striving to save yourself. It's done. 
when Jesus cried on the cross, Tetelestai, it is finished. That's the same phrase that down at the Greek bank, they would stamp on the promissory note when it was done. Boom, Tetelestai, paid in full. There's no more paying the debt back if it's already been paid off, right? Unless you don't have anything better to do with your money, right? In which case, I'd like to have a conversation. No, I'm kidding. But the, the idea there is that it's done. There's no more doing it. It's settled. So no more work. Just rest. So ask yourself this. Do I recognize that the Bible is the sole authority for faith and practice? We should, right? If we don't, something's, something's not quite right. We're elevating something else above what the Bible says. Anything that's in there, we check against Scripture. That's what the Bereans did. If it's good, it's good. If it's not, then it might be a good idea, but we don't elevate it to the same level. Do I understand that I am saved by the grace of God alone? It's not grace after all I can do. It's not grace plus works. It's not grace plus anything. Grace plus anything equals nothing. Do I understand that I'm justified by faith alone? That is only what Jesus has done. Do I understand that salvation comes through Christ alone? Same thing. Do I understand that grace, faith, and salvation are for the glory of God alone? And lastly, do I rejoice in the peace and rest that this truth brings? Friends, if you can say yes to all of those things, awesome. That's amazing. If you can't say yes to all of those things, find an elder and please talk to them because they'd love to have that conversation with you and explain a little bit more about what all of these things mean. But we are already in Christ, in God's rest, if we are saved by grace, justified by faith through Christ. There is nothing that can remove us from that rest. It is done. Christ will do everything for you, Tim Keller said, or nothing. One or the other. They are mutually exclusive. So as we come to the table today, I encourage you guys, um, you can start prepping the uh, communion packets as we come to this table of peace and rest. And uh, we will uh, partake of uh, what's known as a means of grace. It's not that grace is conferred through this, but it's, it's a reminder of us of the grace that God has given to us that we, we don't deserve to be at this table. Um, we cannot earn being at this table. It is by God's gracious and unmerited gift to us that we are able to come to this table. So if you, if you believe and you could answer yes to all those questions um, and you are a member of the universal church, I invite you to come and partake of the Lord's table. Um, if you are not um, a believer in the Lord Jesus, you can be today. Again, find an elder. We'd love to talk to you about that. Um, but just sit, sit back for this because this is a table for believers because we are professing that God's grace has been conferred to us and that it is not our works and it's not our righteousness. For what I received from the Lord, I pass on now to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, take, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
And the same way after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins might be forgiven. Drink of this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Gracious Lord, as we come to your table this morning, unworthy recipients of your grace, we pray that you would remind us again that our sins are forgiven, that the debt is paid, and that your grace and the gift of faith is enough. Father, as we, as we pull the bread this morning and we prepare, we remember that this is the body of Christ, smitten, broken, battered for us. The sacrifice of sin that you required, but we could not pay. Lord, thank you for this gift that you've given to us. May we always remember what it means. Friends, take and eat. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, you poured out your blood for those who didn't deserve it. Those who nailed you with their sins to that tree, including me. No greater act of love than to lay down your life for not only your friends, but those who were your enemies at the time. By faith, we take this cup and we drink of your death for us that we might walk in the life that you call us to walk. Friends, take and drink. Spirit of God, we ask now that you would pour yourself out upon us, that you would continue to remind us of the seal of the inheritance that is coming, that you would help us to remember that it is by grace we are redeemed and restored, and that it is by faith we are justified and made right in the sight of God. Help us to glorify the Father with everything that we say and do and all of the works that you have called us to walk in, Lord. By the Spirit, may we walk in them. For the glory of God and in Jesus' name we ask, amen. All right, guys, uh, go ahead and stand up with me. We're going to do something a little bit different this morning. Um, we're actually going to close with the doxology. Um, so some of you may know that, some of you don't. If you don't, the words are up there, but we're going to go ahead and sing, and then we'll be dismissed. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Friends, you are immeasurably blessed by the grace of God. Go forth and share that blessing with us.
Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.